Welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations for the Free Russia Foundation. This week, I'm joined by my friend, my colleague, my sometime editor at the now dearly departed American interest, Damir Marusic, whose surname I just learned how to pronounce in its original Croatian about 30 seconds ago. Um, Damir is one of the most interesting reads on American foreign policy and international affairs. Um, I wish he would publish more frequently. I wish he would write a book, which maybe this podcast can finally convince him to do. Even when I disagree with him, I find him more fascinating than people I tend to agree with, which is usually the sign of a very original and urgent intellectual. So Damir, welcome. You're in Croatia now, I think we should say. So we're, we're giving this a kind of Balkan flair this week. That's right. We had Simon Ostrovsky from Baku last week, and we've got you in, what, what is the name of the town that you grew up in? I'm actually uh, in the house I was, well, I wasn't born here. I was almost born here. I was born in the hospital, but uh, this is my childhood home, uh, my grandmother's house in the town of Zadar on the coast. So trying to while away COVID winter here. So far, pretty good, pretty good. Though Croatia is in a terrible state right now, as far as COVID goes. Is it really the numbers are high? I think Luxembourg might be number one in Europe right now, but we're like number two, basically, in both sort of uh, per capita numbers and, um, you know, even like absolute numbers in some in some metrics. It's pretty bad. It's going to be a very ham-handed segue into the topic of conversation, but it's sort of this American solipsism that we forget about Europe. And I feel like there's been this kind of manic depressive approach to how the Europeans have confronted COVID. Like, you know, for a while it was, well, the Scandinavians, they really sorted it out, didn't they? And they didn't have to do full lockdown. And uh, that, that didn't quite work <laughs> That was a false narrative. And then it was Europe is doing so much better because they don't have a Donald Trump spreading misinformation and conspiracy theories. And it turns out, well, actually, no, Europe's not doing so hot. I think it is a, it's a fine sort of segue uh, into sort of talking about foreign policy, because I think that is one of those things that the United States ends up falling prey to. It's sort of a, a product of it, its exceptionalism, uh, its sort of self-conception about how it looks at things. And then how it looks at the rest of the world. And it's, I think, you know, what, what Trump did for a, a large chunk of Americans is that uh, he really made them feel like the country was just underperforming its promise. Its sort of essential idea is being somehow betrayed by Trump. You know, I think that ended up in this kind of weird, almost, it is an exceptionalism, but it's an inversion of it. It's not an, uh, an exceptionalism of pride, but an exceptionalism of shame that somehow we're doing much worse than anywhere else. And yeah, you know, I mean, I think that the really humbling thing about COVID has been the extent to which I think its policy, you know, attempts to to manage it. Uh, it's so overwhelming when it hits in many ways. Croatia had a, a pretty light first go at it. And I remember my dad was telling me, he's like, oh, you know, well, really good public service and healthcare system. And, and they really are on top of it. Turns out they just didn't have many cases. So yeah, they were on top of it and it didn't happen. And now they're completely lost control. The healthcare system's struggling. I want to talk about um, sort of how you see America's role in the wor world evolving, or perhaps devolving, I should say. I mean, because you've written some interesting pieces about this is in itself, I guess, a, a, a reflection of that American solipsism or exceptionalism, where we look at Donald Trump in isolation as this kind of freakish phenomenon never to be repeated again. And he has shattered every norm and he has upended decades, if not, you know, centuries of American international relations and all that. But but actually, if you kind of look at the grand sweep of it, he was in a way a very crude continuation of American withdrawal, for lack of a better term. He was he was kind of almost a caricature of the things that had been taking place a little more subtly a little more artfully under previous administrations. I mean, I think you've written that, you know, sort of America's abandonment of its traditional alliances began under Obama, America's kind of inward 
self-directedness, largely as a result, I think, of this preoccupation with the global war on terror, which has paid diminishing returns, I think, to put it mildly, um, that we just didn't care anymore about Europe. And even the things that we pretended to care about, Asia, remember the famed pivot to Asia, which never was, that was like infrastructure week for the Obama administration, right? Talk a little bit about how you see Trump, now that we, now he's kind of in the rearview mirror a little bit, how you see him in relation to other administrations. I know that's kind of a difficult thing for a lot of people to get their imagination around because again, he, he kind of embodies this freakishness, as I say. And also, what do you think is going to happen now under a Biden administration? Is it really going to be a reversion to some mythical status quo ante, or is it going to be a continuation of the same trajectory that America had been on? Uh, and then, you know, before it kind of reached this, I don't know, sort of strange aberration, or maybe not aberration. I mean, I, I'm giving the floor to you here. Well, let, let's unpack that a little bit. I mean, there's there's a lot to work with there. And maybe let's sort of try and unpack it together, because I agree with a lot of how you characterize that. I don't fully agree with all of it. I do think that, that you know, I, I just remember one thing is I say to my friends in D.C. that are committed realists, you know, the foreign policy realist types during the Obama term. And, you know, they were, I think most people were for Obama on one way or another. Like he, he built up expectations in a lot of ways and then just didn't live up to them. And they'd complain about his foreign policy this way or, or that way. And I I remember saying to them, guys, you've always wanted a realist president. You have him. This is it. This is as realist as you're going to get him. I mean, and then we got Trump, which is obviously more in that sense. It's interesting, though, that I see a lot of continuities with Trump and Obama. I think that's true. In a lot of ways, I don't see Trump as being really that much of an aberration. I mean, he's an aberration insofar as that he's uh, sort of learned to communicate on reality TV and is like a creature of Twitter. And in that sense, he's like no one else that we've had and we're not necessarily likely to have one. Well, who knows? Maybe we have Tucker. But the interesting thing to me is that you know, if you sort of try and pull that out, pull out the whole question of Trump's personal bizarreness, you have a kind of uh, continuity, yeah, of America pulling back. Well, I guess where I quibble with your characterization is this idea of America, I think, like fully withdrawing from the world. Because in a way, Trump's not that either. And Obama wasn't that. It was mostly, I would say, a correction against a kind of well, I guess a certain kind of optimism that like shaped American foreign policy since the end of the Cold War. You mentioned about a book. I, I, I have like a, a book idea and I'm working on a pitch uh, in the next year and try and sort of get as much of it done. But the idea behind it is, is that Obama really represents the end of a certain period in American foreign policy. And that period uh, some would say would mark it as the end of the Cold War. Uh, some would say that the period actually goes back to 1945 and, you know, talk about it as like, you know, the, this long American century or something like that. The way I think about it is that really that period starts with Dayton in 1995, because even Clinton's first term is skeptical, wants to cash in on the peace dividend at the end of the Cold War, just limit American involvement. And it's it's in Dayton, at, at the Dayton Accords after bombing in Bosnia that, that in fact, like the big change happens. And it's after that all the liberal internationalists and the neoconservatives neo in the first Clinton term were all pushing him to do more. He didn't until he did. And it's only after that that Matty Albright's talking about ind indispensable nation and the rest of it. And then, you know, the, the story after that, we go into with other things, but we go into Afghanistan. Afghanistan, we go into Iraq, and Obama's elected against Iraq, ultimately. That's one of his main 
things. You know, he's the Democrat that saw through it. He's the one that called bullshit on it. And that's, if we're just, I mean, he was elected for other reasons, but on the foreign policy thing, he really does tap into that as the one guy in a bipartisan way that, that called bullshit on a really bad war. That informs a lot of what he's doing. You know, in my sort of book idea project is like, it's it's in like 2011 that uh, with the red line in Syria, that Obama's basically marks the end of this period. And so with Obama and Trump, you have this kind of rejection of that sunny optimism. Obama papers over it with his arc of justice talk, you know, arc of history bending towards justice stuff that, that in fact, like things are fine. But while he's again, modulating and sort of pulling back, trying to do less in the world. And you're right. I mean, with European allies, he pulls back and he says, you guys, um, he's resentful that they, he went to Libya to, to back them out. He refuses to do Syria. And uh, he says, Ukraine, you guys lead on this. You know, we got your back basically. But he's like, you know, time for Europe to grow up. He does Asia, but sort of half-heartedly. He doesn't really commit to that. Trump is sort of that more, that sort of impulse, just in a, a more aggressive, uh, a nastier, uglier, unilateralist, boorish sort of way. But ultimately, you can see, I think, the continuity there. He takes the, the pivot to Asia and makes it also trade policy and the rest of it is much more aggressive towards that. He, other than gently taking the training wheels off of Europe, he spurns them, kicks them, like tries to knock over the bicycle. And again, the other thing is, you know, as the Middle East, right, is that that Trump as well. It's like no more wars. We're out of there. We're out of Afghanistan, not the Middle East, but, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, all of that. He's he's pulling up. He's getting out. You know, I think that's a thing between these two presidents. I mean, we can now sort of like talk a little bit about like where this might go, but I don't know. What do you make of that? Does that sound sort of true to you? I think that the real defining problem and, you know, you market at Dayton, which was sort of the, the first, you know, Bosnia being the first American intervention post-Cold War, and it had nothing to do with a kind of global ideology that was, up until the very end, threatening to export itself as revolution and take over everything, including the United States, right? This was the recrudescence of tribalism, ethnic chauvinism, all of the things that actually the Soviet empire kind of in its own brutal fashion kept the lid on for so many decades, right? The, all of this started bubbling to the surface. And America didn't really know what to do because our entire grand strategic vision was Soviet communism or communism, bad. Anything else, eh, we can work with. Yeah. I'm reading the, the Legacy of Ashes, which is the, the kind of definitive history of the CIA since its inception. I had Tim Weiner, the author of that book on the show a couple of weeks ago, and it's a bit too pessimistic, but only just. And really, it's just it, it, the entire thing is about America, you know, doing a coup, backing some, you know, ragtag, ridiculous insurgency in Latin America or in the Middle East or whatever, all with just one goal in mind, beat the Russians, beat the Russians, beat the Russians. So when beat the Russians no longer was a kind of overarching foreign policy vision and a bipartisan one, I think it was just, it was kind of tactics masquerading as strategy or, you know, this whole, as you put it, like the Albright indispensable nation stuff, this came as a postscript to us reacting perhaps a little too belatedly and sort of finally stretching our exclusive superpower muscles because nobody else is going to do it. And now though, you, what you see is, I mean, if this is an overcorrection for the sake of cautiousness or an overcorrection just for the sake of American political exhaustion. I mean, nobody really cares about the Middle East. You know, if, if another Arab Spring broke out tomorrow, I think the electorate would be like, who fucking cares? I mean, like, you know, we've seen this show before. We know the way it's going to go. The Islamists take over. Then the regime backed by Iran and Russia, depending on which country it is, you know, they swoop in. And, and so now, I mean, what you're seeing is kind of almost weirdly a replay of what took place in the 19th century at the kind of tail end of European empires when America really wasn't a force to be reckoned with on the world 
world stage, which is lack of intervention by, and I use this term loosely, liberal democracies doesn't create equilibrium. It creates a kind of power vacuum into which swoops the Eastern powers, namely Russia, right? I mean, you've seen this in Syria. Now, most recently seen it in Nagorno-Karabakh, right? I mean, America was nowhere to be found in that suddenly unfrozen conflict in Russia, I mean, and Turkey, frankly, hold all of the cards there. I mean, I don't have an answer to this question. And I, that's why you know, I talked to you, I talked to Peter Pomerantsev, sort of the people who think big on this subject. I don't really know where America is headed. It seems like the last 20 years of fighting terrorism, we're going to continue to do that, but it's not going to be a one New York Times front page news. This is the new foreign policy and defense doctrine, security doctrine is the return to great power struggle, you know, conventional states vying for influence, vying for power. And fine, I, I appreciate that. And I can see why that would be the new kind of normal. And yet I don't really see America actually pursuing that as a matter of policy. We intervened in Libya, sure. And then we kind of unintervened and handed it off to the Europeans who are at odds with us France is backing a warlord who used to be a CIA asset. Turkey, the second largest army in NATO, has gone in to fight France and Russia, who's also backing this warlord, and the Emiratis, who's also backing this war. I mean, everything seems to be this kind of hodgepodge mess. And the, the one constant throughout is, where the hell is the United States? And actually, what does the United States even want? Yeah. What is the actual objective? And I don't think this is, you know, this assassination of an Iranian nuclear scientist is going to lead to war with Iran. I think that's a bit of an overcooked ham, and it's it's kind of the, the perennial one of the punditocracy. Anytime the Israelis do something naughty, it's going to be World War III, or the Iranians are going to build a bomb tomorrow, and that's that. Not quite. And yet, okay, Obama's coming in, essentially advocating a kind of Obama plus policy, right? Like we return to the nuclear deal, we return to the Paris climate accords. In order to do these things that we need to work with Russia, but hang on, Russia's now the big bad bear that all the Democrats hate because Putin robbed them of the White House in 2016. So how do you reconcile these things? I see a lot of rhetoric and I see a lot of kind of empty symbolism, but I don't really see a kind of a coherent approach, at least not one that's been articulated where you can kind of you can take in all these variables and try to make an equation out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Again, lots of lots of different threads one can pull on there. One way to think about what's happening, I guess, is, you know, the question you asked is like, what, is, what does America want? Or, you know, what's the purpose? Some Googling could probably unearth some gems, but I recall stuff being written along the spirit when the global war on terror, the guat was being birthed, that this might in fact provide some kind of meaning and purpose to the United States. It certainly was being said out loud. If I can't find, if I couldn't Google something right now, I can certainly recall it being said, if not written, but I'm sure it's written as well, because I mean, it was just people were thinking about that in those terms, because in fact, already that sort of indispensable nation, uh, Clinton's second term, didn't feel like it was enough to sort of organize American foreign policy. The interesting thing is, is that you get global war on terror, but then you also have sort of second term Bush and uh, his inaugural and, and the freedom agenda and all the rest of the stuff like really comes bubbling back. One way to think about it is like the last 12 years have been a repudiation of that, of that sort of organizing principle, of that sort of Wilsonian idealism. The interesting thing, I guess, this weekend, 
I don't usually read fiction. I ended up spending an entire day reading Faulkner. Uh, and then the next day, I ended up spent the whole day reading Kennan's American Diplomacy. You know, Kennan's a, a complicated character in many ways. Uh, he'd probably be canceled today. Is uh, bigoted in his own in his own particular sort of waspy white protestant way. But, you know, one of the things that really jumped out for me there was, well, two things related to what we're talking about. One is obviously the one thing that runs through Kennan all the time is his frustration with that Wilsonian tick that Americans have, uh, that idealism, basically, that runs through it. And it's, it's his entire career is marked by his frustration with that. The thing that really jumped out at me about reading through American diplomacy this time, it's probably the third time I've read it, is that how poorly he appreciates it as being sort of also intrinsic to the American thing. You know, trying to sort of think past the next, these last 12 years, I, I think it would be, it, it's a mistake. And I go back to what I was saying to my my realist friends in DC about, you know, Obama being your your best bet for, for your kind of politics that you're going to see in your lifetime. Okay, so you got four more years of Trump, and you know, even more so. And so, yeah, I think, I think Biden's going to try and restore that. Now, how successful is he going to be to appeal to that? Because I don't think Wilsonianism, that stuff really goes away in American politics. It, it sort of goes dormant because we've had a bunch of ham-fisted politics, uh, policies that have come out of it, not least of which is the Iraq war, which is scarring, and then Afghanistan as well, which perhaps is done for the right reasons, but then morphs into, you know, a, a nation building, a really ambitious nation building exercise that is simply not feasible under timeframes that are politically defensible in a democracy, I would say. Right. I don't think that this is now gone in America in any sort of way. It just goes dormant waiting for the right kind of political leadership that's able to harness it for their goals. Is Biden the guy to do that? Mm, I'm not sure. Biden's not the most articulate and, uh, you know, inspiring speaker. His sort of down-home, almost fumbling manner is kind of comforting, I guess, now uh, for a country after after four years of Trump. But he's not going to oratorically, I think, swing things in that way. People like Tony Blinken uh, are true believers in multilateralism. Uh, Jake Sullivan, too, I think. And so there's going to be an attempt to do something with that. But as you said, it's sort of like Obamaism warmed over on Paris Accords. Okay, sure. Yeah. Iran deal, you follow the Middle East way more closely than me. And I mean, we can get into that. I really do wonder, it was on their priorities first hundred days. I, I'm not sure they're going to be able to do it. I don't know if you saw Tom Friedman's column from yesterday or the day before saying basically, hey, Joe, this is not the Middle East, completely different thing. We can talk about that column too. It's weird because I'm not sure exactly what as you said, what does America want or what is America going to do in the Middle East as a result of all of this? But just taking a step back from those specifics, I do think that there's going to be an attempt to appeal to some of those things. I'm not sure Biden is able to do it. I'm not sure Biden fully uh, subscribes to the rosy, you know, full Wilsonian view of the world. I think he's got a bit of a gritty side to him as well. Yeah. You know, the, for all the packaging and or the marketing of the Biden foreign policy as being Obama 2.0 or I guess 3.0, a lot of the telegraphing coming from Sullivan, Blinken, and sort of his own brain trust, it actually reminds me more of a second Clinton administration. And so for me, the thought experiment is this, with this team in place, had you had Bashar al-Assad gas 1,200, 1,400 people in his capital city in 2013, would Joe Biden have enforced a red line, which granted he might not have articulated the way that 
Barack Obama rather fumblingly did and boxed himself into that corner. Uh, and I have to think, yeah, he probably would have. And he might have done it for that sort of very tired reason of American credibility and not forfeiting the threat of military action when you've made it. And then I ask, well, if a Ukraine crisis broke out under his watch, I mean, and this one is, is I think, almost a no-brainer. I mean, I could easily see Joe Biden giving Javelin or selling Javelin anti-tank missiles to the Ukrainian army and making much more of a fuss because for him, he comes out of that sort of 89er generation of democracy, market economy. There are, are no alternatives to this. I mean, I think he, in his own way, his befuddlement at the state of the world and, and the reason that he got into this race because of this sort of stark and hideous creature of American populist authoritarianism called Donald Trump. He doesn't understand how we got here because things seem to be going in a certain direction and then they were reversed or halted and then reversed. So in that respect, you know, Biden is more an old school, in some ways, like the John McCain of the Democratic Party, right? Like not not nearly as hawkish or interventionist, but definitely of a mindset that, you know, the post-war American-led liberal order is worth preserving. And that means something rather than just mere rhetoric. Now, that's not to say, I mean, you know, clearly a lot of these trains have pulled out of the station already. I mean, yes, they're going to inherit a different Middle East, or even the Europeans, frankly, who were aghast at Trump's withdrawal from the JCPOA are saying, I think, according to the Wall Street Journal, don't rush into another deal. Uh, Actually, the Iranians are on the back foot. They're ravaged by COVID. Their economy is in tatters. And oh, by the way, they lost, you know, sort of their genius military strategist and spy master, Qasem Soleimani, whose, you know, assassination by Donald Trump has not led to a kind of regional collapse, as was anticipated and predicted by many a Middle East pundit. So take a breath, get your bearings, understand the new landscape, and then see what you can do. But Iraq is fucking mess, right? I mean, nobody's going to argue that this was, well, that's not true. There, you, you will find Iraqis who will argue it was a worthwhile endeavor and they were saved from the ravages of Saddamism, ISIS, and everything else that came thereafter. But I don't think any American foreign policy thinker is going to defend the Iraq war and occupation at this point. Syria, well, I mean, depending on who you query, the realists would say we actually did too much. The liberal interventionists and certainly the Syrian people would say we did hardly anything. And it led to this coalitional effort to combat terrorism when we should have been combating a quote unquote secular dictator. And yet, look, I mean, America has not stopped doing things in the world. It it seems to have lost this kind of unified field theory of what America's role in the world is supposed to be. I think we, we, you and I were talking about this in Georgia, the country, right? Yeah. It's like a phantom limb. You feel it, right? You feel America as the indispensable nation. You know, we have all the, the, the pieties and the kind of the catechism and every speech is just sort of dripping with this stuff, but it, it doesn't exist. It's not there. And so can it be recreated or are we in this kind of inexorable lurch toward America, not as isolationist republic in the Pat Buchanan sense of the term, but uh, America is a kind of spent and exhausted and frankly, you know, checked out superpower. And what does that mean for how things are going to be done? I mean, you you pay more attention to this idea of a sovereign, autonomous, security independent Europe. And I just have to ask you, I mean, the Europeans have had ample opportunities now, eight years of Obama and now four years of Trump, there's 12 years to get their shit together. And yet I see precious few signs that they've actually done so, or that there's, I mean, look at, look at the way France and Germany are at each other's throats about everything from the Eastern Mediterranean to the Middle East to, I mean, God knows what, uh, reforming Islam as President Macron's new kind of domestic policy uh, has it. I mean, tell me, how badly does America have to say, 
screw you, Europe, for you <laughs> to actually step up and do the things that it, it proclaims it wants to do, absent American empire. You're absolutely right that, that you know, America's vacuum is felt, at least broadly. I want to just sort of hit on that, that it's true. I mean, you know, you, you see our absence in Nagorno-Karabakh, you see it elsewhere, you know, I mean, even in Belarus, like no leadership, and you point to the Europeans, that's exactly right. You know, I mean, to a certain extent, it's like if the Europeans can't get their act together on Belarus, they're belatedly trying to, you know, get a sanction packages together, but it's it's literally their their front doorstep and it's they've they've been right. reasonably absent from it. I suppose one can one can say that that the Caucasus is far afield, but Europeans wouldn't have at their prouder moments admitted that not that long ago. It is also their front doorstep. And they had aspirations to be a player there, also completely absent. Without America, what does it amount to? It amounts to chaos and squabbling and, and all the rest of it. I, I absolutely agree with all of that. On Biden, I guess we have to ask ourselves whether it's possible that America can have a successful foreign policy that nevertheless isn't totalizing, totalizing sort of ideologically, that it doesn't have like a single lodestar that, that drives it. I wonder if that's maybe what we're going to see in the next four years, an attempt to do that. So in a sense, it's going to be maybe, despite all the rhetoric about the, uh, the value of alliances and values and restoring the, the luster to stuff that, that Trump has completely tarnished uh, the last four years, I do wonder you know, whether in reality, uh, when we're done and having this conversation for eight years time and, and looking back at the sort of the Biden or the Biden-Harris sort of um, reign, you will say, well, you know, like that trend of sort of realism continued almost in a way because an, an overarching idealistic vision didn't emerge. And it was it was a bunch of attempts to pick and choose fights and, and do what can be done. I've now cited it on Twitter once. I use it in an essay, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll mention it again because I think it's a, it's a great anecdote. It's in, um, in George Packer's uh, biography of, of Holbrook. Holbrook meets Biden while he is running Afghanistan for for Obama and uh, Biden just like he's you know presenting to him basically plans you know his sort of plans for for Afghanistan whatever they were at that point this was like a couple of weeks I think before Holbrook ends up dying I think that's right but in any case it's it's at some point there and he and and Biden just rips into him he says I'm not sending my boy to die for a bunch of women in Afghanistan. And Holbrook is completely taken aback. He says, like, first, he, he he remembers Biden as the guy that was actually among the Democrats urging Clinton to get involved in Bosnia and the rest of it. And Biden's just like, look, man, you don't get politics. We're going to get destroyed. We've been in Afghanistan for way too long. We're not there to build a nation. We're, you know, we had a mission. It's just like gone over. And Holbrook at one point goes, but, you know, we owe it to these people. We've made promises. And Biden, the quote is something like, it goes, fuck that. Kissinger and Nixon got away with it in Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, he's got, he had some real zingers. I mean, yeah, okay. I, I say he's the John McCain of the Democratic Party. I, I think that's more of a longevity in politics and, you know, foreign policy focus more than anything. You know, it was in Endgame, I think, the book, like the definitive book about the Iraq occupation, where, you know, Biden was the biggest Nouri al-Maliki booster there was. And he was like, this is our guy. And, you know, he's somebody we can do business with. Almost Biden, one could argue, not quite single-handedly, but just about reinstalled Maliki, even though he lost the election. And this was all premised on the idea that the status of forces agreement would be extended. And there's a quote in Endgame where Biden is like, God damn it, Nouri al-Maliki will extend SOFA. I'll bet my vice presidency on it. Right. Well, of course, as you know, SOFA was not extended. And Joe Biden remained vice president. I totally understand and appreciate that. I just, I do wonder though, I mean, if a, a genocide broke out on his watch, 
and it wasn't being committed by a hyperpower like China, where the United States simply cannot afford any kind of military engagement. Would Joe Biden say, well, screw the women and children, you know, Nixon, Kissinger got away with it. Afghanistan, was that just a matter of him being exhausted by a, a, a war that America simply cannot win and has been prosecuting for 20 years and trying to do the impossible, which is turn this country into something that it perhaps this is too harsh. But I think realistically, it's true. This doesn't want to be. If something broke out in Europe, I mean, if there was another Russian invasion or annexation of sovereign European soil, I could see Biden mounting the rostrum and sort of banging on about the inviability of Article 5 and talking about sectoral sanctions and bringing the Russian economy to its knees. I mean, he seems very much of that ilk. And again, a lot of this could just be a function of the war on terror paying such you know, scant dividends 20 some odd years on, which it has. I think he's sentimental about Europe. I think about that for sort of Cold War reasons. And I think you'd probably get him mounting the ramparts for Europe. Right. It's not there yet, but thought experiment, would we send troops to Ethiopia? I'm not sure we would. I think that the, the move there would be to scream bloody murder and do sort of public diplomacy on it, but not much more than that would be my guess and rely on, I don't know, African Union and just like pressure. Right. Which is fine, ultimately. I mean, it's leadership. I saw Jake Sullivan was already uh, admonishing the Ethiopians uh, over Twitter, you know, like days after he was nominated for a national security advisor. I could see something like that happening. But my conclusion at watching, I looked into Biden's sort of record and tried to sort of piece it together. It's that actually he's not that ideological. I think he might be sentimental. And the other thing is, it's, it's not a bad thing for a politician in a democracy. I think he's very attentive to, uh, to public moods about stuff. So you have him actually uh, pivoting on these sorts of things. So being on the one hand, pro-Bosnia, pro-humanitarian uh, intervention there, ending the war, uh, and then so cruelly pivoting on a war in Afghanistan, which he feels is basically a huge political liability at this point. The interesting thing is, like, what does it end up being? Again, it's like thinking through, is you have this sort of, call it whatever, a kind of realism that's filtered through this institutionalism, this kind of idea of like rebuilding alliances and the rest of this. So how does that, what does that look in practice? My concern is that you're talking about like the defense stuff on, on Europe. I, I don't know if you saw the Europeans uh, just over the weekend leaked a draft of like a proposal of what they're going to come to the Biden administration. They're sort of like opening gambit of things. If I'm not mistaken, defense is not on, <laughs> it's not on the list. It's like... <laughs> cooperating on vaccines and they're like olive branch is let's talk let's let's regulate tech together we're not going to tax facebook or whatever the hell you know their stuff i thought it was a, a pretty weak document but obviously it was just leaked to sort of get it out there and see what it is i think that if biden were a little more realistic maybe he judges it it's just it's it's too impolitic to growl at the europeans out in public but in private, at least, I would be signaling to them, guys, Trump was not just not all wrong. He was about 80% right on you guys. And maybe he was a little rude to you guys. I wonder if they're not going to do that because of their commitment to this multilateralism as opposed to having a steely view of things. I think that's a mistake. That's a, a missed opportunity because that's one of those things where I, I think Trump did real damage, but he also, I think, provided a useful bucket of cold water to throw on the Europeans who really should be doing more for themselves. This is kind of where I'm, I wonder, for all the carnage and, and destructiveness of his presidency, if he wasn't a kind of very important scarecrow, not just for the Europeans, but just the world, right? The Iranians now know that their Eisenhower or MacArthur figure 
who they thought was untouchable, which is the reason he kind of was the selfie uh, general taking photos from every fucking battlefield that the Iranians were in, which was like every one in the Middle East. And just at the drop of a hat, I mean, turned into hamburger in Baghdad International Airport. You know, like it, it does show the world, okay, America went through this fever once. It could easily succumb to it again. Maybe we do need to start, you know, if you're a NATO member state, meeting our benchmark defense expenditure for inclusion in the alliance. Uh, or if you're a rogue state, maybe we should kind of rethink poking the tiger a little too much or testing an American president. I do think that Donald Trump is a, a phenomenon that can be repeated. I don't think just because he's tossed from power now that we can't have a resurgence of this kind of populist authoritarianism. We don't know what's going to happen in the next four years under Biden. We don't know how the economy is going to look. We don't know if COVID it seems to be a ways away from being past us. I don't know. And, you know, you still have the fact, the kind of rather stubborn fact, that 70 plus million people in this country voted for Trump, despite everything, being impeached, being full of shit on Twitter every single day or every single hour of every single day. I mean, for all of the stuff that you and I look at and we're just like orange man, not just bad, but sort of malignant. A lot of people were like, eh, not so bad, actually. Yeah, look, it's I, I think that may end up being Trump's legacy is that that again, uh, once you strip away the the egregiousness of him, again, that he was sort of hitting on a certain kind of moment. And it's a means of America adjusting to, I think, emerging realities. Look, I mean, the thing that that is striking about NATO is I would never think that it's wise to get rid of it. Even in its dysfunctional state, it's a force multiplier for the United States and the world. It's an important one. That said, Macron's not wrong when he said that it's kind of brain dead. And I think the way to think about what that is, is, is to what purpose? What purpose does it serve? Now, yeah, to deter Russia, sure. And that's not nothing. It's, it's an important thing. And sure, yeah, it's kind of like an anti-room. You enter collective security before you enter the European family, sure. But again, a lot of these things need to be re-examined. European accession is perhaps dead for good at this point. That's one thing to keep in mind. And a lot of these balances are shifting. And so, you know, maybe maybe what we have with Trump is the first sort of attempt to deal with it and to sort of reorient. I just want to say one more thing. I think, you know, when you think about like what Biden's going to do, try and imagine, given that he's someone who's, I think, attentive to, uh, to public opinion, given that a lot of his advisors, uh, I think actually see China quite clearly, but still are, are really quite beholden to this idea of multilateralism as the way forward, as like, as the good. You even alluded to it earlier, it's, you know, to get climate done, we need to, well, deal with Russia and, and even, you know, more fundamentally, a lot of people say it, you can't get climate done without China on board. The problem there is that like, there Biden's team, at least, at least on paper, at least right now, especially by appointing John frickin' Kerry as the climate czar, I think they, they stand a, a real danger of falling at the same trap that I think the Europeans have fallen into uh, as sort of committed multilateralists in this sort of way, which is to say that, yeah, climate's very important. I'm not some sort of kook that says that this is something that, that should be ignored. I do think, though, that if you are like putting climate at the top of the agenda and then making everything flow from it, you're doing not a good job. You're, you're making many mistakes, I think, right there. Sort of most obvious one is that the Chinese themselves need to get a handle on their own pollution for very much for pressing domestic reasons. And so, in fact, they're going to do what they're going to do. They'll pocket that and then offer it as some sort of trading card. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that's absolutely the wrong way to do it. If there's one way to do it is, as you said, a climate agenda. 
And then you come with a fair complete to the Chinese and be like, you need to be on this because we're leading this and this is what you need to live up to. And you don't use it as a chit to bargain with them on this sort of stuff. I'm worried that that's the main downfall of the Biden administration. Now, again, every administration learns after a while and they're coming in with a lot of ideas and a lot of sort of preconceived notions. Maybe they get frustrated early with a lot of it and have to make hard decisions. Overall, I think there's smart, thoughtful people going in. So I'm not actually worried about that. I think there's going to be a bit of a learning process, though, in this first part. And then again, looking four years, eight years ahead, as, as again, you and I sit down and think about this, I do wonder if we'll, we'll have a conclusion that, you know, America still hasn't found its sort of guiding principle. And maybe this kind of, it's not really realism, but it, it's, it's a kind of somewhat principled on a certain set of principles, but a more pragmatic approach to what can be done uh, at any one period and like setting, setting priorities. Several years ago, I wrote this essay called America the Erratic. I mean, it, it creates a problem because priorities are set differently by different administrations. The Iran deal is a, is a perfect example of that, is that you had a democratic administration set this whole thing out that was completely rolled back. That just sets, puts the question to the world is like, which America do you trust? As you said, like you, you put it in terms of, of like Trumpism and populism, but you, you know, take, taking a step back, I would say the two parties have now actually very little consensus on some very key foreign policy things. People like saying, well, everyone agrees China's a problem, but there's a lot lot of daylight between the parties about like how they see it, how they approach it, and the rest of this. In many ways, this was always the case, even during the height of the Cold War. As you, as you read it, you see this sort of like vacillation in it. But you're still tied to this framework, which is Soviet Union threat. <laughs> we know that this is bad for America. And there's a kind of consensus around that. That again, vacillates like more muscular, less muscular, but, but there's a kind of something. With that gone, I do think with those guardrails, you're going to have an America that is less reliable because you're not going to be able to really guess which way it's going to go, president to president in foreign policy. And yet at the same time, I, I think perhaps, yeah, just uh, uh, sort of feeling its way to, to its thing. And depending on what the priorities are, getting to, to sort of different places. What does that portend for order? Yeah, it, it's probably messy uh, because a kind of single unifying print and at least knowing that the United States would stand up for it in the breach with that being gone yeah i think that that empowers a lot of actors to take risks like not 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 unlike erdogan in, in nagorno karabakh and in the caucasus and you know it's a very tidy little um microcosm of the kind of stuff that medium-sized powers end up getting up to when when there's no when there's no guardrails and let's not forget nagorno karabakh it's a, a frozen conflict that was thawed and borders removed uh by guns Important principle again happened in Ukraine as well, but that was that was a, a superpower doing it well. You know, whatever a, a fading superpower, but a, a nuclear armed superpower shifting borders by arms. This is now is going to be pretty much signed, sealed, and delivered. And it's small actors acting in their own interests, backed by by patrons for sure. But but shifting things that's a big change. Perhaps we see a lot more of that as America does what it does for the next four to eight years. There's one other thing I wanted to ask you about, and I, I don't know if this comes out of left field for you, but uh, as somebody who wasn't born in the United States, but, but lives here and make, has made this your home, as a European who grew up in a part of the world there where there was war and there was genocide, and as somebody who perhaps was a beneficiary of American hard power and that kind of idealistic Wilsonian approach in the 90s, the culture that you see exhibited in this country now, both on the left and on the right, one can Think of the ONN, Fox News, Newsmax, Trumpian congeries on the one hand. And on the other hand, I mean, how to put it generously, ultra performative wokeness of social media, the idea that the American experiment was inherently a white supremacist, flawed, 
malign endeavor and it should never have been waged and that, oh, by the way, the Soviets put women in space first and, you know, the kind of cultural relativism we're seeing exhibited now by very smart people and people in professional sort of news gathering roles and so on. Do you see these things as outcroppings of America's kind of abandonment of or crisis of purpose post-Cold War? So in other words, 1989 came and went, and the idea of this sort of inevitable sweep of liberal democracy, no alternatives, America would lead the way, all of that has come crashing down, and we are this exhausted superpower, I don't know, like sleepy colossus bestriding the globe. And internally, I mean, there's just crazy shit happening. <laughs> and it's it's almost a spoiled brat syndrome. You know, it's like the, the trust fund baby of American culture has now awoken and is just kind of talking and debating and arguing and shouting about things that frankly just don't matter to most people. And yet, again, it is that embodiment of our solipsism and our kind of, I don't know what the political science term for being up one's own ass is, but that. Do you see that as a as an extension of everything we've been talking about? Or is that com- something completely separate and has its own origin story? I mean, maybe things were always like this because everybody looks backward and says, oh, you know, the, the golden age that I was born too late for and the golden age turned out not to be so golden. But I don't know. I mean, I was around since 1980 and I was around in ni- the 1990s at the height of political correctness. And then, you know, the sort of right wing antithesis of it. And it didn't seem as crazy as it, it does now. Maybe that's just my perspective. No, I mean, I, I was in school in the 90s, too. I And I, I do remember like Antioch College and their sort of weird PC stuff about, you know, asking consent before you unhook a bra or something like that. I mean, it's asked like written consent. I think there was like a Saturday Night Live sketch mocking it at the time. Even I mean, it was just like, you know, it gotten so nuts at that point. And yeah, this is feels like at a perhaps at a higher fever pitch. The interesting thing on being from the Balkans and the 1990s experience, and maybe this is why, at least as I watch this, and maybe it's part of why I'm sort of, you know, motivated to, you know, this this book project or why I, I sort of start the American, what we know as the sort of American liberal internationalist moment in 1995, not before it, is because I think a lot of people of our generation basically became more cognizant of politics in like 96, 98, something like that. And then read backwards from that, that in fact, in the early 1990s, the United States was always like this. And in fact, from 1989 to 1995, it was just like America, we sort of half remembered in our youth watching the watching the Gulf War, Bush talking about, you know, he managed to gather a coalition, was leading and, and all the rest of that. But in fact, I, I do think there's a, a real case to be made that the early 1990s were actually quite different, that the United States was, wasn't the, the United States of 1998 in 1992. And again, being from the Balkans, you know, you said it like uh, benefiting from, you know, American interventionism and stuff like that. The enduring feeling uh, in this part of the world, you talk to Bosnians, they are eternally grateful for the final intervention and Clinton is a hero. Uh, And in Kosovo as well, it's like it's America is remembered, especially in in general, Albanians are like the the biggest uh, fans of America. But it's the bigger picture, the bigger feeling in the region is one of like a real dissolution, disillusionment with, with the European project, with the Europeans, what they did. And to a large extent, also throughout the, the 1990s, with the fact like the, with the broader West and the United States involved as well. Like uh, to a certain extent, 
there was a lot of pretty talk after 89, 91, all the rest of this. But as a war was happening, nothing was being done. I mean, there was in, there was attempts to do it. Europe's bickering around it. In Croatia, was particularly resented, in fact, that arms embargoes were put on us and, in fact, the Bosnians in order to stop the war. That exacerbated things. I feel like what I learned in that period is to just really understand like, like international relations in so many ways is just like that. It's the filthiest and, and most whorish of all endeavors, like the least, it's it's just really dirty when you get down to it. And the kind of compromises that are made to do it, like all the high-flying rhetoric, it ends up being very hollow. So you're asking me how I look at, at specifically, you know, both the kind of selfishness on the right and the kind of almost comical self-loathing on the left that's taking over America. And I'll tell you, as someone who's, who is an American, I just like didn't just make it my home. I'm, I'm an American now. I think both those are, are far off the mark. If I'm jaundiced at the sort of maximalist Wilsonian American self-conception, I still understand and appreciate America for its genuine exceptionalism. You know places outside of America. You you understand that America is different, that it's fundamentally different. And it's not just it's not just something as simple as its values. It's it's kind of a miraculous place when you when you think about it. It's miraculous in its in its capacity for self-reinvention. It's miraculous for the amount of power it wields. And and quite frankly, despite my cynicism, it is also miraculous the fact that in fact it is still, despite all of its sort of fatigue and the rest of this, it is guided by a certain kind of vision that no other country is likely to be guided at. Even in the breach, even at its weakest, it's still it's still very different. So I mean, my corrective to you is that like, I, I don't think that, that coming from a place that was wracked by war, it's not so simple for me to say that, that I see America as like the great savior and, oh, the great savior has now really wandered and, oh, look at these fools. It's more like I've always been somewhat critical, skeptical, and I've always pushed back at sort of Wilsonian maximalism as American self-conception. I think that that gets America in trouble. And now, especially as an American, I don't want to see America squander its its resources and make the kinds of mistakes that in fact undermine its prestige, that, that like tear it up inside and and make it less effective. But at the same time, I, I never succumb to uh, of silliness on either on the right and the left. I think it's a it's a really bizarre, as you put it, it's, it is like trust fund kids. It's, it's entitled nonsense. It's garbage. I, I guess I remain kind of optimistic. I, I still think that this country ends up reinventing itself. And we're in a process of reinvention right now. And I think a lot of the sort of foreign policy things are getting reexamined in the way that they end up getting reexamined. Priorities get shifted, whether we land on, on a kind of, you know, cohesive vision. Uh, like I was saying, I mean, there are real costs to not having that, but maybe we're just not likely to have it in the next four or even eight years. Uh, let's see. But still, I think one also shouldn't get carried away with the kind of pessimism and, and declinism about a lot of this stuff. I just don't see it. I think America's way better off than, than most people give it credit for. Well, that, I mean, that's the flip side of the kind of, you know, end of history argument, or at least the caricature of the end of history argument that, you know, everything was coming up roses and nothing could stop that from happening. And now it's this Spenglerian gloom and doom and we're all committing suicide even faster than we'd imagined. And history doesn't really work that way, as you know, but it's hard not to, to remove yourself from that kind of national mood. Uh, but I don't know, maybe now we have. You know, it's weird to see a guy like Trump defeated in the midst of a pandemic, because what would otherwise be probably, at least for liberals or centrists who voted him out, kind of jubilant mood. And, and also the way it happened, right? It, it unfurled over the course of weeks, and it's still not technically done because he's not conceded and he's still 
traffic and all this nonsense. You know, even that seems anticlimactic. The great comeuppance of America's first quote unquote dictator or aspiring dictator is sort of like, eh, okay, you know, what's next on the agenda? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it just it's uh, it goes to show. I mean, American politics is, is a rough business. Also, that's the other the other bit that that I think is easy to forget. It's not it's not about norms and comedy and the rest of it. it it's rough. And uh, but yeah, again, uh, infinite capacity for reinvention. Let's hope. I remain optimistic. All right. Well, that's good because I remain pessimistic. So we balance each other on this. Damir, I've taken up too much of your time. It must be like it's very late in Croatia. But I want to thank you for joining me. And, you know, this is a discussion that we've had many times in person. And I, that's why I knew I would enjoy it. We'll have you back on to do a um, midterm assessment of the Biden presidency and see if it's met expectation. Always happy to. Michael, pleasure talking to you as always. As always, man. Okay. Thanks, Damir. All right. Talk soon. 